Well, welcome back to the Ironic Protestant Podcast, uh, a bi-weekly show where we strive together for the knowledge of God, his word, and his world through the lens of the classical and confessional Protestant tradition. Uh, I'm Jonathan, uh, your editor and co-host. And then we got our boy Jordan over here, the Baptist. How's it going, Jordan? It's pretty good. That's good. And we got our main man, Joshua. I'm doing well. Good, good. And then... Sadly, Matthew, our barely Presbyterian, is not here today. There's a scheduling conflict, and he he's missing. So we'll have to make it up to him later. Um, and uh, today today's show we are is brought to you by Davenant Hall. Uh, it's the refounding of the ancient university for the digital frontier, grounded in the wisdom of the classic Protestant classical Protestant tradition. We're gonna hear more from them later on in this episode. And today's episode is a very special episode. Today we have on our first guest, the Reverend Stephen Wedgworth. He is the rector at Christ Church Anglican in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, it's a member of the Diocese of the Living Word, and we are so happy to have you on. How's it? How's it going? Yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, fantastic name, you know. The, the name of this show is awesome. I wonder where we got it from. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I said this on the first episode of the show, I'm like, you know, I saw the term ironic reform, reformed ironic, like, that sounds really nice, like a year ago, and this guy named Stephen Wedgworth's bio, and that, that, that word ironic has always stuck with me, and, and I was like, man, I didn't even know what it meant at the time, but I was like, that sounds really cool, and so, uh, but then, you know, getting involved with the David Institute, and listening to all their stuff, and they're striving for Protestant ironicism, like that, it's a perfect podcast name, so we're so happy to have you on. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your story, um, and how you're at, where you're at in the Anglican world? Sure. So I grew up in South Mississippi, and um, that really is still, you know, my 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 genealogy is Mississippian. Um, but I've been everywhere now. I've bounced all over the place. So I uh, grew up Southern Baptist. Um, became reformed when I was entering college. Um, and it was kind of like a mixture of the um, new Calvinist, young, restless, reformed mm-hmm. guys, and the wild and woolly and terrifying kind of Christian reconstructionist, theonomous types. Um, that was my world. And of course, I didn't know anything about any of that. It was presented to me as this is reformed theology. <laughs> so, so I spent a number of years navigating all of that, ended up going to seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, at reformed theological seminary. Um, I was ordained um, right away after I graduated. So that would have been 2008. And I was, my, my first stop was in the CREC, the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches. So um, your podcast may be canceled as soon as this show is over because of that association, but <laughs> that was it. Um, and I stayed in that church, in that denomination for two different churches. So I was down in Florida where you guys are now. I was in Lakeland, Polk County. Um, but then after that time, and uh, well, I guess that was 2016 or so when I left there, um, I moved into PCA. So I was, uh, I was kind of eclectically reformed, and then I became PCA. I was very happy there, enjoyed my time at the PCA. It took me all the way to Canada. I was in Vancouver, British Columbia, and I uh, worked at the church with Mark Jones. He's a senior pastor, Faith Reformed Presbyterian. He is still there. Uh, fantastic church, just solid time. I was really able to um, uh, grow as, as a minister, get my bearings under me after kind of a, you know, a challenging uh, initiation in general. 
Um, and uh, in the PCA in Western Canada, it was, it was really a fine fit. Uh, I was happily um, reformed. Um, Westminster Confession of Faith, I still uh, you know, largely uh, would, would affirm everything in there. Like a lot of PCA guys, you know, there's one or two points that I may be a little soft on this or that, but um, it was nothing that I had strong opposition to, uh, nothing I felt the need to, to, to dissent against, I was, was quite happy with. Um, but because of my background, you know, I was always also comfortable with things um, that we weren't doing at that church. So I was, I was fine with the liturgical style service, uh, even though we didn't do that uh, in Vancouver. So um, when I became uh, Anglican, which is what I am now, it was definitely not what most people would expect. So uh, I'm only slightly more Anglican than Matthew Pearson. Uh, <laughs> um, I, <Yeah>. um, <laughs> um, I became Anglican and I viewed that as a lateral move, you know, like I'm mm -hmm. not really having this dramatic transformation. Right. Yeah, there will be some changes. There will be some things. I don't want to underestimate the differences, but as far as, you know, doctrine, I didn't see any uh, any transformation there. Um, now that wouldn't be true of every Anglican, right? So you have to have to say that right off the bat. But for my diocese and especially my parish, uh, they were very happy to have a reformed guy. Um, once we talked through all my views and issues, uh, there was really no problem. And as I understood and learned more about the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. Um, you know, the reservations that I would have had going in really were, were, were taken away. Um, and so I was very excited once I got to know more about it. Um, I also have the benefit of this parish, uh, one of my, uh, one of the members of the vestry. So a vestry are lay people, but they are um, sort of like leaders of the corporation. You can think of them that way. They, they tend to the temporal aspects of the church, help set policy. Um, one of my uh, vestry members is, um, he is one of the editors of the uh, international edition. There you go. Yeah. yeah so yeah. Pr Professor Sam Bray. Mm -hmm. So um, I had the benefit of joining a parish with extremely knowledgeable lay people um, who know more about it than I know. And so, you know, as part of my interviewing for the job, I'm also, you know, taking classes with one of the guys. I'm like, what do I need to know? What teach me how to be, you know, your brand of Anglican. Um, and so we really did. We had BCP classes and he, he gave me resources and helping me to understand it. So, so I'm a brand new Anglican in that sense. I just came here in January. Um, I did have, you know, I've been in ministry now for about 10 years or actually um, more than 10 years. I guess it's, um, you know, getting closer to 15 um, and, I have always appreciated and studied the full breadth of the Reformation. So it wasn't like I didn't know anything at all, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm a newbie as far as Anglicanism goes. I would want to state that really clearly. Um, but I feel, I feel confident in the people around me, the resources I've been given. Um, my Bishop is awesome. Bishop Julian Dobbs, um, very supportive of what we're doing here. So that's been really cool. Um, and I don't want to overestimate how unique we are because there are other, there are other churches that do what we do, um, but there aren't that many. And I think you have to be honest about that. We are, uh, we are trying to help promote a brand of Anglicanism that has certainly not been common in the United States. 
And I happily refer to it as a Reformation Anglicanism. Um, we are very confident about our position with the, the standards, uh, the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, 39 articles, the uh, classical ordinal, that is the, the method of ordaining uh, bishops, priests, and deacons. And then in my parish, I'm also held to the books of homilies. <laughs> oh wow! So yeah, they they added on an even extra formulary just to keep me uh, keep me reformed. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, man, that that's that's a really awesome story. And um, I mean, all three of us here we're big fans of the 1660 International Edition. So when it, when it came out, I made sure to buy three copies so I could have one for myself and give to other people. So I got one to Jordan and I got one to Josh. You know, so I actually I met Josh his second week of school. He's a freshman. And he's like, I'm the Dutch reform, he's a Dutch reform guy. And I was like, I like this kid. So the next week I was like, hey, no, I just met you, but take this. You're going to be my friend. And so I gave him <laughs> his copy of a 1660 National Edition. So it's always been great to get together and actually get to use it. But a, a question that, you know, some of the audience might have is, you know, what is the Book of Common Prayer? And what's its origin? What's it, you know, what is it? Yeah. So... It is the liturgical manual for originally for the Church of England and then for any of those daughter churches that descended from it. Now, to understand the, what it does, uh, the Church of England, it, it's more like Lutheranism than Continental Reformed in one respect, not in all respects, but in one respect, and that they really did want to retain as much of the historical um, liturgy as they could. You know, they weren't saying, well, let's get rid of as much as possible and only keep the essentials. It was, let's, let's see if we can keep, you know, if, we're, if we've been doing it, it's in the life of the people, let's try to keep it unless we can't, you know, unless it is something that presents a problem. And so for Cranmer, uh, he worked with existing, you know, pieces of liturgy, um, not exclusively English, though. It is important to know he drew from continental reformed and Lutheran sources, uh, particularly, uh, you know, things coming from Bootser and Melanchthon. Um, and so he, he's sampling and drawing from those sources as well. Um, but he did also retain elements that were in the classic English um, liturgies, uh, particularly coming out of Salisbury. It's also often called the Sarum, right? So the Book of Common Prayer is his attempt to take that stuff, make key changes, um, some of which are brand new, brand new compositions, um, and then he puts it all together. And so the Book of Common Prayer has got your morning prayer liturgy, which is uh, intended for a corporate gathering. It's not private devotion. You can use it for private devotion. You can, you can adapt it for that purpose, but it's, it's designed for corporate. Morning prayer, evening prayer, um, and those are standalone services. It's also got the litany, which is an extremely long but extremely good uh, prayer that is a back and forth between the clergy and people. Uh, and then it has um, occasional prayers or extra, you know, small things, prayer for a time of famine, prayer for a time of war. Um, and those are very uh, applicable for personal use. You can just pull those out and use them as you need to. Um, then it has a communion service. Uh, most people are surprised to learn that in Anglicanism, that's a separate service. <laughs> you have a morning prayer service, and then you have an, a communion service. Um, and it also uh, has baptismal services. Uh, the 1662 has infants and for older people. So it has two different ones for that. 
has a service for uh, weddings, funerals, those sorts of things. Visitations are in there. Uh, it has a complete Psalter. And then in the 1662, it also has the, the confessional standards. It has the 39 articles uh, and it has the um, ordinal, the, the standard for ordination. So it's kind of like it's a, it's a worship manual. It's a confession of faith. It's a book of church order all together. <laughs> That's awesome. So, you know, and the reason we are having you on today is to talk about the baptismal liturgies in the 1662 edition. So actually the way I was first introduced to your work on Calvinist International was I was, it was mid high school for me, junior year. I had just transitioned. I grew up Baptist MacArthur world. And, you know, uh, earlier on in my high school career, I was, I was like, got the RTS app, listened to the lectures, like, okay, I'm Presbyterian now. Um, but then I, I ran into the reconstructionist federal vision world. And that's what I was listening to and interacting with. And, you know, they're bringing up questions of, you know, baptismal regeneration and, you know, they'd make offhanded quotes to random reformers making statements about it. And I was just confused. And so, but one of the places I found that helped get clarity was, you know, you'd written a lot about baptism and regeneration and presumptive regeneration on Calvinist International. Um, and so we'd love to talk to you about the baptismal offices in, in the prayer book. So could you give us a brief overview of what takes place in that baptismal service? Um, yeah. In the prayer book. Yeah. Well, great question. Um, there are two different services. Um, actually, there's three. One of them is sort of, um, you know, rarely used. It's in the event that the child is going to die before it can come to a formal service. And so Cramer actually has a service for the minister to go to the mother and child. And that was so that she wouldn't be doing it you know, on or on. It wouldn't be this kind of mom baptizes the baby. He wanted to, he wanted to retain the opportunity to do a baptism in an extreme situation, but he wanted it to still be controlled and done appropriately and by the church. Um, so there's that one. We won't talk about that one though. That one is kind of um, only for extreme situations um, and it's not, not assumed to be normative. So the, the two main ones are uh, infant baptism, and then it says baptism for those who are of riper years. And what's, what's really cool about the 1662 International Edition is they have included some of the um, introductory essays. So there's the stuff that Cramer wrote, where he gives his own philosophy of worship, of ceremonies being the key one. Uh, but then there's also the one that they wrote at the time of the Restoration when you're bringing back the monarchy and they're reinstituting the Book of Common Prayer in 1662. Um, and that one is sort of saying, here's what we've changed. Here's what we've updated. Basically, we've kept everything from Edward VI's reign, which would have also been largely used under King James. Uh, you know, we've kept all of that stuff. We haven't made any material changes, but a few little touch-ups. And then they mention, but we have added this baptismal service for people who are of riper years, and you know why they add it? Is it because of the new world? Yes, okay. because of missionary evangelistic activity amongst Native Americans. Yeah, and that's just worth noting because um, you know you can you can forget that the like the history of colonialism is complicated. There's bad stuff there, but there was also like just good Christians wanting to to do God's work. Right? We got to bring the gospel to these people. And that was when Anglicans were really confronted with a non-Christendom experience. 
you know, you're going to a community and they aren't Christians. <laughs> and so they had to write a whole second liturgy for their baptisms, because in, in England, as long as anyone could remember, you're only baptizing infants. That's it. You know, you can't you can't find a non-Christian family. <laughs> um, and so when they go to the new world, oh, OK. Um, and so there's that liturgy for those who have riper years. And it's important to see that there are those two different ones, because then you can compare what's what's common to both, you know, the language that they don't change, and then what's different, what they do change. And that keys you into the theology. So um, what goes on at these services? If it's an infant, you uh, bring the godparents up. So that'll be a question for non-Anglicans, what are godparents? Um, long tradition, certainly present in uh, Augustine of Hippo. Um, but these are non-family members who are promising and taking vows to assist in the spiritual nurture on the children. Um, and in, in the prayer book, that's a real deal. It's a, it's a holy obligation before God that you will help catechize these children. You will see to it that they uh, live up to the promises that are made on their behalf um, and that you personally will make sure that they come to the bishop for confirmation, which means a, a personal profession of faith on their part. Uh, you, you will walk them through that whole training and you will see to it that they are, when they are ready, brought to the bishop to make a profession of faith. Uh, so it's a big deal. Um, when I became Anglican, that was a question I had. What are godparents? Um, I was definitely cynical about it. You know, I've seen the movie, The Godfather, right? <laughs> uh, we know how that is abused, and it's just sort of like a, um, an honorary title to your, your friends or people you admire. Um, that's not what it should be. Like, it should really be a, a formal oath that a person makes to God to help raise a particular child. Um, now, in later Anglican history, it's, it's common that the parents just are the godparents. And, and if you're coming from a non-Anglican background and you're already baptized, your kids are already baptized, that, that's typically just all we'll do. We'll say, well, we're not, we're not going to make you be God, get more right. godparents. Um, but if you, if you are able to have godparents, it's just a communal reinforcement. So, so they make the vows, the godparents make the vows. Um, why not the parents? Probably two answers. One, I think it's assumed the parents will also do this, you know, because they're parents that they, they have to, there's, there's not a need to do an ex extra ceremony for them. Um, but also you have to remember it back in the day, mom, she may not be alive anymore. Right? Very common that she dies in childbirth. And so the idea of godparents also fill that function. Um, you, need, you need help. You need more people. Um, so it starts off if you're baptizing infants with the godparents. They come up. The minister is explaining what's going on. And, um, and he is presenting this in the, on the assumption of faith, of people who are believers. And that is also key because he's saying that um, you cannot be saved by nature. Like you cannot have the salvation from the flesh. Um, you've got to have the work of the Holy Spirit uh, changing your nature. And so the first prayer is actually from Luther. Um, it's called the flood prayer. It's an amazing prayer. Um, 
and it talks about how baptism is typologically associated to the flood and to the Red Sea. And it is asking God to uh, essentially make the baptism effective. You know, this is a type and a sign of regeneration, of the forgiveness of sins, of the adoption. And so, oh, Lord, we're asking you to do this. Um, but you want to notice it says, uh, we beseech thee for thine infinite mercies to uh, look upon this child, wash him and sanctify him with the Holy Ghost. So it's always assumed that you're asking God to work by the Holy Spirit upon this child. Um, there's a second prayer, which is, again, asking God to be faithful, to answer and to respond. And then there's a short um, scripture reading about bringing children to Jesus. Do not uh, turn them away. Yep. Can I ask a question about that? So um, something that when I was first, uh, so I really got introduced into the Anglican tradition later on in high school. So, you know, I actually went to a liturgical Presbyterian church and like, what's going on? And like, oh, we're using the Book of Common Prayer. I was like, whoa. And so I went home and I ordered, you know, the Oxford edition of the 1662 and I started to read through the baptismal service. And I noticed something that at the time was really shocking to me. And I was like, there's nothing the the, the passage they used to justify it isn't Genesis 17. It's not Acts 2. They, <laughs> they go to, they go to, they go to Mark 10, you know, and at the time with my, uh, just my background with, you know, more Presbyterian baptismal theology, you know, the, the big justification for the reason to baptize is the child's uh, inclusion in the covenant community and God's promise will be God to you and to your, you know, seat after you. But I noticed there's, um, there seemed to be a, maybe not a lax word, but, you know, the covenant concept doesn't really seem to be the justification for the baptism in, in the prayer book. So why, why Mark, why Mark 10? It seems to be like, cause I know a lot of Lutheran liturgies use Mark 10 in their justification in the institution of uh, baptism. So why Mark 10? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's one you see a lot in the literature. Um, you'll see, well, Anglicans are not as, uh, they don't emphasize the covenant as much on baptism. And maybe, maybe not. This is one of the many debates about Anglicanism. Um, if you read about Cranmer himself, and you read his writings in controversy, um, he invokes the covenant all the time. Uh, he's not shy about it. Um, and of course, he is constantly writing, interacting with uh, Heinrich Bullinger, Peter Martyr, so uh, Bootser. Um, so it's not like he didn't like the covenant. Um, but I think that it's the context. It probably was the case in England that at this time, of course, 1662 is down the road, but this liturgy goes back even you know, to Cranmer's day. Um, there wasn't really a strong Anabaptist threat. There were a few Anabaptists around, but, you know, that wasn't the big issue for Cranmer's day. It was Catholics. <laughs> it's Catholics versus Protestants. That's the battle. Um, and so I think you don't have to have the covenant mentioned in the liturgy because it's not the popular controversy. You know, it's not what's on the mm -hmm. average person's brain. Um, so you don't have that. 
But also this is one of those things where compare it to the believer's baptism liturgy and you can see what's going on. Um, here it's about children, bring children to Jesus. The believer's baptism, they don't read this passage. They read John 3, Nicodemus coming to Jesus, you know, you must be born again. And so I think it's also just fitting the occasion. Mm -hmm. This is about kids and the other one is about older people. So that's, I think, your explanation there. Okay. Um, awesome. It Thank you. may indicate that the covenant is not as significant, um, but I don't know that it needs to. Um, and it certainly uh, is true that Anglican theologians uh, make use of the covenant in their apologetics. That's helpful. Thank you. Um, oh, another thing, not to pick on our other variety of Anglicans, but the 1928 BCP, they they cut this prayer out. Can you believe it? <laughs> you, you got yeah, Luther's it's, prayer. It's the best doing, prayer. Doing awesome biblical theology stuff, mm -hmm. right? And you say, yeah, we could live without that. <laughs> Do you think that's like the, the, like, I know, like you see the creep of modernism kind of begin in the 1928 also with like, well, and I think the American church in general, like the lack of the Athanasian creed and other things like that. So do you think, uh, <clears throat> that's a hint of modernism sneaking into the 1928 and saying, ah, this typology stuff, eh, put it off to the I, side. I do not know the reason why they would get rid of it. Um, probably it is they shorten everything. Mm -hmm. So across the board, when they're making cuts, it's usually to just get it shorter. So um, that would be my, my best guess okay. is they just say, hey, there's, there's a couple of prayers here. We don't, you know, we don't need all of these prayers. Uh, there may have been other ideas. I, I don't know the history of the who was there and what was motivating them. Um, but they do remove this prayer, um, which is, in my mind, just shocking. You know, if you're going to remove something, not, not Luther's flood prayer. Right? Exactly. But, um, and then, so, so after that, there's a scripture reading about the children being brought to Jesus, and then there's a brief exhortation, and the exhortation is asking the people to believe, and, and you're going to notice that I keep emphasizing this theme throughout. Um, the minister is to tell the people, doubt ye not, therefore, but earnestly believe that he, that is Christ, will likewise favorably receive this present infant, that he will embrace him with the arms of mercy, that he will give unto him the blessing of eternal life and make him partaker of his everlasting kingdom. Wherefore, we being thus persuaded of the goodwill of our heavenly father towards this infant, declared by his son, Jesus Christ, and nothing doubting, but that he favorably accepteth this charitable work of ours in bringing this infant to holy baptism, let us faithfully and devoutly give thanks. So you've got to take all of these clauses really weightily. Um, Jesus wants this child. That's, that's the first premise. And I think you could use covenant theology to strengthen that. You know, why do we think he wants this child? What is the, why, why are we so confident? He wants this child, and so don't doubt it. Believe. Uh, and after uh, all of this, uh, let's give thanks. So this is key to understanding later language in the right. Um, it's all about believing that God actually wants to do this thing, trusting in God and his grace and Christ's mercy. 
Um, and then there's a prayer asking God to do it. Um, we now ask that you increase this knowledge, confirm this faith in us, and then give thy Holy Spirit to this infant that he may be born again. And so you, you have two different requests. Help us believe that this is going to be effective, and then give this infant your spirit. And after all of that comes the vows. And um, the, the godparents are making the vows, but they are making the vows in place of the child. So, uh, you know, you, you've heard of in classical education circles, they'll say the teacher is in loco parentis, mm -hmm. standing in place of the parent. The same is true here for these, uh, uh, well, except it's not parentis. It's not even loco parentis. It's, you know, in loco, uh, yeah, whatever you call the child, right? Paidos or whatever. <laughs> like they're standing in place of the child in phantom. Um, they are speaking and making promises on his behalf. And uh, this is really important um, because it shows you that the whole, the whole logic of the baptismal service here is contingent upon a profession of faith. So our Baptist brother is excited. He's jumping up and right. down. Absolutely. Our, our, our Dutch Reformed is not so sure. He's like, hmm, maybe I like it, but I don't know. I thought it wasn't contingent on faith. <laughs> There's a whole background to that. Um, but it's definitely in the prayer book, it's contingent on faith. And since the infant can't profess his faith, you got to get somebody else in here to do it. Uh, and so that's the gone parents. And so dost thou in the name of this child renounce the devil and all his works, the vain pomp and glory of the world and covetous desires of the same and the carnal desires of the flesh. This is why you should be Anglican, okay? You can say really based stuff in the literature. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and now a brief word from our sponsor, Davenant Hall. Davenant Hall is a refounding of the ancient university for the digital frontier grounded in the wisdom of the classical Protestant tradition. In their upcoming spring term, they are offering a variety of engaging courses. This week we were spotlighting the course, Knowing and Naming the Holy Trinity, taught by Ryan Hurd. Amid a resurgent appreci appreciation of the God-said unity among Reformed and Evangelical circles, this course will consider the vital question of what it means to distinguish the three persons of the Trinity. Through a close reading of Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica, students will come away with some understanding of who each person of the Trinity is, and a confidence that this understanding is not a philosophical projection onto the Christian faith, but a fact firmly rooted in Scripture. This course will consist of two hours of live instruction per week via Zoom, but if you want to enroll just to listen in, you can always download the conversation to play for yourself later. The cost to audit is $149, and the course runs from April 11th through June 17th, and the deadline is fast approaching on March 25th. And if this class does not tickle your fancy, you can check out other stellar course offerings at davenathall.com. Now back to the show. Yeah, so this is, this is something that when I was coming into the, uh, the Anglican tradition and, and starting to read and understand it, that always was really off-putting to me. Just, be, just 
just because like my background in reformed covenant theology and the school I attend. And, um, and when I watched my first Anglican baptism and, you know, godparents are making promises in place of the infant, I was, I, I didn't get it. So what's the theology behind this where people that aren't the parents, but are a part of the covenant community representing the child as the basis for which the child can come to be baptized? Yeah. So this is huge. This is key to the whole theology because you're going to ask me later, like, what about baptismal regeneration? Yes. Yeah. And the the liturgy is going to say this at the end, seeing that this child is now regenerate, let us give thanks. So like that's in there. And if any Anglican under the name of being reformed, you know, tries to hide that or run away, they, they lose. Like that's not how you can't get away from that. That's there. But the question is, why is it there? What does it mean? How could a guy like Cranmer say such a thing? Mm-hmm. And this is where you need to synthesize the whole prayer book. Um, again, you might encounter some people saying, well, the articles, that's where the theology is. And um, the prayer book is not really theology. Well, it's actually both. They go back and forth. They reinforce one another. Um, and you need to read them in conversation with each other. So the reason you're having to do all of this business about making promises on behalf of the child is because sacraments have to be received rightly. Mm-hmm. And this comes up in Article 26 and Article 27. Um, baptism, uh, so 26 is about the minister doesn't invalidate the sacrament, uh, and 27 is about baptism. And it says uh, in 27, baptism must be received rightly, or to those who it is received rightly, it is an instrument by which God performs these works. And it says your faith is confirmed and grace is increased by prayer. That's really important. It doesn't say faith is created. That would be more of the Lutheran view, right? That baptism creates your faith. Uh, Faith is confirmed. So that sounds reformed. That sounds good reformed Mm -hmm. stuff. And it's increased by prayer. Well, the infant's not able to pray. You know, so again, someone's got to pray on his behalf. If you read Cranmer, and, and there's a good book, it's super expensive, so you're not going to buy it, but interlibrary loan it, and it's this guy named Jeans, J-E-A-N-E-S, uh, and it's about Cranmer's Theology of the Sacraments. Um, and I think, I forget the exact title, it's got the name Signs, Signs of God's Grace. Signs is the main title, subtitle is Sacrament, uh, Cranmer's Theology of the Sacraments. In that book, he has a lot of material of Cranmer's interaction with other, other theologians, and it it actually mentions he disagreed with Peter Martyr. So again, we need Matthew Pearson here to make great I'm telling jokes. you. Um, he likes Peter Martyr for the most part. They're buddies. They're, you know, but he disagrees with Peter Martyr on this one point, which is that um, we should assume the child already is regenerate. And so that's Peter Martyr's view. That's normative continental reformed. The mm-hmm. child is already regenerate. And we baptize them, and and then the baptism helps confirm all of that. Um, But what he says is that maybe sometimes, but maybe not, and it might be the case that the child actually doesn't get personally regenerated until much later, or it could also be the case that he's regenerated in the act and moment of baptism. And so you see Cramer actually saying this stuff in writing. and It sounds very Westminster. He's crafting this liturgy to allow for... Um, you know, each of those views, perhaps, but he wants 
he wants not to get stuck on any of those views, but to just say, this is supposed to make us believe that God saves this infant. And we're asking God to do that. We're putting our trust in him to do that. Um, and we believe that ordinarily, normally, this infant will be regenerate. And so I think probably Cranmer thought most of the time it would happen in the acts of baptism. I mean, that's, that's the most natural reading. But we have evidence in his writings that he says, but it may not always. Uh, and we don't even have to say it's already happened. You know, it's basically like it's not, um, we don't have to have an answer to that question. That's not the main issue here. And so bringing in the gone parents is to fill in that gap. We don't need to have the infant necessarily having faith. We don't even have to say the infant is going to be given faith right away. We're going to have people that represent this infant speak and make vows. And they're going to make promises about their future as well. You know, we will continue to be with this infant and we're going to help raise him and then bring him to the bishop for confirmation. So, um, a question that I would have, though, then like synthesizing Article 27 with the statement, seeing this infant being now regenerate, um, you know, there is the emphasis of, you know, the person that rightly receives, as you said, is the person that actually receives the benefit of baptism. So it's not as though the article is saying every person baptized receives the benefit of baptism. So how, how do we, so um, how do we understand this language of the the minister saying this child is regenerate even though um that's not something that is for sure right yeah um is this a presumptive regeneration so this is the the big question this is where everybody anglican and non-anglican alike this is where they're going to go to have the debate just so viewers and listeners um you know are aware of what we're talking about after the child is baptized, after the water is put on in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and after he is signed with the cross and commended to manfully fight under Christ's banner against sin, uh, after all of that, then the minister says, seeing now, dearly beloved, that this child is regenerate and grafted into the body of Christ's church, let us give thanks unto Almighty God for these benefits. And so that's there. That's sort of the, the crescendo. Um, after you've done the baptism in the minister, it, it's like at a wedding. Now I present to you uh, the, the Mr. and Mrs. Um, that's happening. And so the natural understanding, and again, I think for public catechesis, the idea is, Lord, before it happens, Lord, please make this effective. Oh, God, unite things visible and invisible and save this child. And then you do it, you baptize, and then you say, thank you, Lord, for uniting things visible and invisible and saving this child. So that's how the liturgy works. And it is to be normative and teaching and forming the community to think in that way. But yes, it can't be automatic. It can't be universal. It can't be one-to-one. Um, the articles say as much. Cranmer says as much in his writings. Um, let me pull up a quote um, I had uh, from him, from the, the book uh, by uh, Jeans. Um, he's, he's digging into Cranmer's journals and um, especially his commentary on Augustine. 
So this is another big part of Anglicanism. Um, they were very you know, confident in their kinship with the continental reformers, but they felt a higher um, obligation to, um, to synthesize with Augustine as much as possible. You know, mm-hmm. Augustine really was like a second <clears throat> um, formulary almost. <laughs> right. Uh, obviously they can't do it all the time, but a lot of the times. So um, we have in the history, um, Cranmer's editions of Augustine's writings where he's underlining and scribbling and making notes and so this is Cranmer. I just want you to hear so people don't think that I'm, I'm trying to like um, undo what Cranmer wrote in the liturgy. This is Cranmer himself writing about uh, commenting on Augustine's theology. Uh, he says, even as in Abraham, the righteousness of faith came first and circumcision came after as a seal of righteousness. So in Cornelius, spiritual sanctification came first and the gift of the Holy Spirit and the sacrament of regeneration came after. By this, it is shown that the sacrament of baptism is one thing, and the confession of the heart is another. The conversion of the heart can be present even when baptism is not received, but it cannot be present when baptism is spurned. Mm. And so Cramer is acknowledging very directly that um, you know, you can have a heart regeneration without a sacramental regeneration, without without a baptism on you. Um, and um, also, I found this out when I was getting to do my first baptismal service, like for real on the ground, uh, just a few weeks after getting here. So I really had to make sure I'm cool with it, right? Because it's one thing to say, sure, you know, that's okay. Um, I don't think I have an objection. Like that's that's one standard. It's another standard to then get up in front of people and say it, right? Like, I, in the name of God, say to you. That's a different thing. So I was, you know, oh, man, I, you know, I really better make sure this is right. <laughs> and so I dug up this uh, online PRDL. You got to have PRDL bookmarked, Post-Reformation Digital Library. Um, yep. Jeremy Taylor, his book on baptism. Taylor is an Anglican divine who gets a start under Laud. So we don't like that. Boo, no law. Boo, no, no, um, of course yeah. not. <laughs> but um, he then goes underground, so to speak, during Cromwell's reign. He's kind of basically a private chaplain, just keeping a low profile. Um, but he's studying and writing and actually getting quite famous due to his learned scholarship. And then when the restoration is brought about, he's then made a bishop, you know, he sort of um, has his vindication in the Anglican world. So he writes a book called A Discourse of Baptism and its Institution and Efficacy upon All Believers, together with the consideration of the practice of the church in baptizing infants of believing parents and the practice justified. So so this is a guy who's clearly a Restoration Anglican. I mean, he's a bishop. He's not a Puritan. Uh, Some people try to say he's an Arminian even. So it's, it's good to understand like, what the popular assumption is. I don't mm-hmm. think he's an Arminian. I think, right. um, you know, a lot of people just didn't know the categories that well. And so if you were like a kind of moderate Calvinist who just didn't really like to get into that stuff, people would call you an Arminian. Um, but I don't think he was really an Arminian, but, but he's certainly not like a hardcore Puritan, no way. But this is what Taylor says. Um, he says, 
Baptism is but the material part in the sacrament. It is the spirit that giveth life, whose work is faith and repentance begun by himself without the sacrament and consigned in the sacrament and actuated and increased in the cooperation of our whole life. Now, I mean, that's, that's huge key terminology, right? The, the spirit begins his work without the sacrament. Again, this is not yeah. a Puritan. This is, this is definitely a Caroline yeah. divine Anglican. Um, and he's writing at the time in which the 1662 mm -hmm. comes, comes around. He also says something else, too, by the way, that's like, you know, if the Federal Vision guys would have had access to this kind of material, they definitely would have uh, been able to say what they were trying to say uh, in a more orthodox fashion, um, you know, with more traditional language. Um, he says, um, let me find it, I have a bunch of these listed here. Um, the secret effects of election and of the spirit are in scripture attributed to all those of the outward communion. These are usually significant of a general custom or order of things or duty of men or design. Um, the proper expectation of events. And then he quotes from the scripture, as many as you are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And he explains, so it is regularly. And so it will be in due time. But we cannot conclude of every person and in every period of time, this man hath been baptized, therefore now he is clothed with Christ. Nor can we say this person cannot, in a spiritual sense, as yet put on Christ, therefore he has not been baptized, nor put him on in a sacramental sense. So, again, like, if, if we had these categories more accessible to us, uh, then I think we'd have an easier time making sense of this. You have uh, a spiritual sense and a sacramental sense. Now, we don't know the spiritual sense. We can't see into the heart. So if I, as a minister, get up there on a Sunday and start talking about the spiritual sense, then I, I don't actually have a solid footing. But I can speak about the sacramental sense because that's an objective thing that doesn't move around. Mm -hmm. um, and it is the natural expectation. You know, it's the ordinary thing that we think God has set up. And that's why we're calling people to have faith. Right, right. That's, that's, that's super helpful. That's super helpful. And it's really surprising. I've always associated Jeremy Taylor as, well, the Anglo-Catholics seem to love him as a proto-Anglo-Catholic. And I think that's partly because of his, um, you know, a, maybe a, a bit more lean towards certain ceremonies and higher church stuff. But yeah, that's, that's, that's awesome to hear. Uh, that's really helpful. Uh, a question I'd have to follow up to that, though, is... That, that makes sense, you know, hearing about it from the infant side, but also we see in the uh, baptism of those at riper years, the same declaration, seeing that this person is now regenerate. And so yes. what, is, what then is the, re, is the relationship between that statement and we'd usually assume that the person coming to Christ as an adult and submitting themselves to baptism has already has the reality. So yep. why that declaration and prayer that they will be regenerate if we believe them to already be regenerate? 
Right. So again, this is key to understanding the logic because yeah, the same thing is said about older people. Now the administration of baptism to such as of a riper years and are able to answer for themselves, it has some differences. There are no godparents because you don't need them, right? This person is a grown up. They're old enough to make the vows for themselves. And the rubrics are very interesting here because it says um, before they can do this, before they can take these vows, it says due care must be taken for their examination, whether they are sufficiently instructed in the principles of the Christian religion. And they may be exhorted to prepare themselves with prayer and fasting for the receiving of the sacrament. So, so they can't even come and do this unless they've been instructed and found fit. So, you know, unless we're going to scrap all of our other doctrine about effectual calling and right. grace on the heart, um, then, yeah, they're spiritually regenerate already. They've got to be. Um, and again, to think Cramer uh, wouldn't have that cleared in his brain. <laughs> like, uh, again, he didn't write this liturgy because this liturgy is crafted for those uh, coming later. But, um, you know, to think that someone holding um, a Cranmerian doctrine of grace and repentance would somehow forget that, it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't hold up. So again, this reemphasizes the fact that there's a distinction between a spiritual regeneration and a sacramental signification regeneration. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the things that are different here, um, you have the same prayer, but a different reading. It's John 3, Nicodemus, you got to be born again. Um, and then the person makes the vows on their own part, not in the name of someone else. Um, but other than that, then it's all, all the same. Uh, the prayers are um, granted the old Adam and this person may be buried so again, you know, acting as if sounding like, you know, it hasn't happened yet, asking that it will happen. And then after the baptism, you say, seeing now these persons are regenerate, let us give thanks. And so I've seen some, I've encountered some Anglicans, they try to do really strange things, say, well, um, the person is like sort of regenerate, but not really or, you know, they have like the right to be regenerate, but they aren't yet regenerate. And that just creates so many complications. Like what, what is that? You have a new heart, like you, you're able to repent and accept Jesus. And so if you go that route, then you also have to, uh, you know, basically lose a lot of your reform distinctives, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're sort of reform, you're sort of regenerate, you're, you're, you're able to repent and accept Jesus, but you're not yet a new creature. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Like you're not a new creature until you're put into Christ. He is the new creation. Um, so once you start tinkering and pulling out these things, it, it does all collapse. Mm -hmm. It has to, it, it only works if you are, uh, if every piece of the prayer book and the articles and the larger theology are mutually reinforcing, mm -hmm. then it works. So of course, the person who's already come to you and been catechized and shown themselves to be ready to be baptized has had spiritual regeneration, right? but they haven't had sacramental regeneration. They haven't had a formal oath. They haven't had a ceremony in the people of God by mm -hmm. which they can be received and sanctified right. in that capacity. 
that's all that's that's super helpful yeah because i you know in in the anglican verse of of twitter which is where you know i've operated a lot you know in in late high school and then coming to rbc and not really having anglican churches around I me mean, most of my interaction and learning has been through you know guys like you know eric uh, matthew parker who's a you know a big twitter net, you know, name on twitter and you know people and and people in that world in this kind of reformed dish anglicanish world and this and this issue always seems so confusing and everybody seems to say a different thing about yeah how how the service works oh um, yeah well so hey again let's let's be clear i'm talking about the 1662 right if you use a different prayer book then my arguments are not going to work because they mm -hmm. make changes. Right. So I mentioned that they take the flood prayer out in 1928. They also take the, um, the connection to confirmation. Um, and it's not in there or it's not required. It's not like, it's not mandatory. I think it may even be omitted and deleted from some of them at the end where the minister says, uh, now you godparents, you, you must bring the child to the bishop. Like that, that's how my service ends. That's the last thing I say to them. But later prayer books removed that. And they also changed the confirmation service. So the 1662 confirmation service picks right back up there. When you were baptized, your godparents made promises. They made vows. Now you've been catechized. And here we are. It's time to affirm your vows. But the 28 prayer book, it, it cuts all that stuff. And it has a different introduction with a different topic. Mm -hmm. And so... If you start doing that, then what I'm saying to you about the 1662 service, it is not going to be persuasive. It's not going to work because your prayer book is different. Right. And so I'm not speaking for all Anglicans. No way. Like, I can't do that. Anglicanism has grown and grown. It's its own thing. I'm only talking about the 1662 prayer book and the, the understanding of the system that has been given to me by, by this particular kind of Reformation Anglicanism. Right. Hey, Jordan, I think you had a question regarding confirmation and its connection to the baptismal service. Yeah, so I was um, wondering, like, I I've heard a lot of different denominations argue that you know, uh, children, once they're baptized, should take the Lord's Supper. And obviously with Anglicanism, you have um, confirmation. So I was just wondering with this kind of dichotomy of sacramental conversion and um, the other conversion you mentioned is what would you, I guess, say to someone who is maybe leaning in that direction of, of wanting their child that's baptized but not confirmed to take the Lord's Supper? Yeah, great question personal question because I've been in different positions on this right when I was when I was first coming in I was like very much on board with paedo communion um, and a lot of that was because I was reacting to a, a certain way that um, you know confirmation or communicants was presented so I'm in Mississippi and so typically it was just a way for Presbyterians to kind of be Baptist you know, hey, you're not really in the covenant. You're not really a Christian until you make a profession of faith. Um, and I didn't like that, right? I had, I had a lot of theological problems with that. And then also kind of one way that people will lean on 1 Corinthians 11 is kind of the whole case, right? Let a man examine himself. Um, I, I read various revisionary readings of that and thought they were stronger. You know, <laughs> thought Rob Rayburn mm -hmm. Jr. really mopped the floor with people. So I was, I was persuaded of that. Um, but as I grew and start, started to integrate 
all of these doctrines together. This is kind of what's key for me. And it's not like, oh, I had one dramatic change. You know, I think differently about this or that, but you have, you have to make them all work together for it really to make sense. For communion, um, you do need that level of personal accountability. Like, you know what you're getting into. Uh, you are taking upon the obligations of rightly participating, but you also have, um, it also ties into discipline and order. You know, the ministers have a certain responsibility and obligation, um, and excommunication is the ultimate way that they put you out of things. But if they don't have authority over how to let you in, then how do they have authority to let put you out, right? Like, that, there's a weak spot there, and you'll find a lot of pedo communion is weak on discipline, like that, that they kind of go together. And in my experience, a lot of pedo communion took communion away from the church, uh, and sort of gave it squarely to the family. And it doesn't have to, it's not like everybody always does that, but that was a common experience. And so I began to change my perspective, not so much on like, what does first Corinthians 11 mean, or what are these kids, but it's more about how does this fit with the whole life of the church? Um, how does this work with order and discipline? And so that, that's my personal history and confession there. I'm not like dogmatically 100% one way or the other, but I, I'm, I'm comfortable with what we're doing with the prayer book because it makes sense of the whole system. And um, you have to be confirmed to take communion or you have to at least be um, in the process of confirmation. And the way that that works in this book is not saying that's when you're a Christian. That's when you're converted. In fact, the opposite, right? We've been saying all this other stuff. This child is regenerate. Um, it's just saying now he's, he's, he's completed his duties to be catechized. Uh, he's ready to own these promises in an individual capacity mm -hmm. rather than someone speaking for him. And that's what confirmation does. And it becomes the entrance on a more personal level. So we entered you into the church in a sacramental, covenantal, you know, corporate way. And now you're entering in a more individual way. And that's why now you can be individually disciplined. You know? right. Like if it came to that, you could be individually removed from the communion. Um, so that's the function there. Many Anglican churches now, though, they, they, they do a lot of pedo communion. And again, it kind of falls with the lessening of confirmation. Um, you know, they don't connect confirmation to baptism like the 1662 does. Um, and they may, they may uh, redefine confirmation. So some people define confirmation as like, you know, a, a sort of second reception of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so like you're, I don't even totally understand this because it's not what we do here. And I just had to spend a lot of time looking into their best arguments. But, but the idea is that it's something like a secondary Pentecost. You know, you had something going on, some giving of the spirit earlier, and now you're getting more of the spirit. That, that's one way people interpret it. Um, and of course, at that point, it, it, it's not doing the same function. Um, and then unfortunately, in a lot of evangelical Anglicans, they just don't even do it. Or, or it's so de-emphasized, you know, confirmation is like, if you really want to, um, you know, if you're ready to take on um, the extra high burdens of maybe, you know, like premium membership, <laughs> you, know, you want to level up and be one of our inner circle people. I don't even know exactly why they talk that way, but they will, they will de-emphasize it. They will say, um, you know, if you want to, you can get confirmed. 
And so once you do that, then again, my earlier argument starts to unravel. You no longer have that line where you can say, see, the child did own the promises. You know, we're, we're no longer giving this benefit of the doubt kind of thing. We can actually say he said it, she said it. Um, so it, it's, a, it's important in that sense. And that's why we connect it with entrance to communion, because then, again, that child is differentiating themselves as an individual member. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really helpful. I remember when I, uh, so when I came to RBC, I started out at a, you know, Presbyterian church because I didn't think there was any nearby Anglican churches. And I found out, oh, the Episcopal Diocese here is still kind of conservative. Mm-hmm. So I started to attend um, the cathedral in the evening service and they had a, a professor, a guy who was a professor at RTS. So I was like, oh, this place is great. Well, fast forward a few months, I ended up becoming the youth director at the cathedral and that's when I started to get my feet wet in Anglicanism. <laughs> and it's, it's like, it is 1979 to the T BCP all the way around. And they, they love it. You know, I don't know many people like that actually like use the 1979 and like, really like think it's the best thing ever, but they thought it was the best thing ever. So I was, that was my introduction in some ways. Um, and I was, you know, they were, I was on the process to getting confirmed and the entire time I was like, man, what? what is this? Like, why am I doing this? Like what's going on? And I just never got the same answer for what is confirmation other than kind of like a high five. You're in, you're in the group now. Yeah. Um, I ended up not getting confirmed. I ended up stepping down uh, because like you said, pedo communion, which was going on too, leads to a lack of church discipline sometimes in some areas. And um, I, I found out they were communing people that really should not have been communing, even though they were conservative on the issue of like same sex marriage because of the Episcopal Church, they weren't refusing communion to, you know, people that are practicing same, um, same-sex marriage. So I was like, whoa, didn't realize this when I took this job and I ended up stepping down. But I think, I think you speak to a, a truth of like, uh, you know, confirmation in some parts of the world being, a, being a, like a sacrament without a theology. Um, mm-hmm. So it's helpful to get a clear view of what confirmation is yeah. um, from the perspective and- of classical Anglicanism. It is not considered a sacrament in the Articles or the 1662. It's very important. Um, Someone told me, though, in the 2019 ACNA um, Catechism and Prayer Book, they do use that language. Mm -hmm. And so, again, that's evidence of the diversity in Anglicanism. Um, the 1662, um, you know, it doesn't use that language for confirmation, and it says there are only two. Um, there are only two sacraments. It says that in the articles, and says that in the catechism. There's a catechism in the mm-hmm. uh, prayer book. So confirmation is not a sacrament, but it's sort of like the, the culmination or the completion of what happened at mm-hmm. baptism. It's the bookend. That's what you should understand it to be. Um, And again, it's when the child is moving into their own right. They're no longer having people speak for them, but they are speaking and embracing it for themselves. That's super helpful. Well, hey, I just noticed the time. We need to start wrapping up. Um, (laughs) But so thank you so much for coming on. This this has been really been awesome and been a treat for us. Uh, It's been super helpful in understanding the theology and what's going on uh, in, in the prayer book. Uh, we usually end, uh, I forgot to prep you on this, but we usually end by t- going around talking about something we're reading right now. Okay. So we'll, we'll have you go last because I forgot to prep you on it. And <laughs> Jordan, what are you reading? Um, I've been uh, reading some uh, Thomas Goodwin on uh, just the divine right nature of, of church government. So this has been interesting. I haven't really read him before and I usually read Owen, you know, and uh 
I think people attack Owen for being too hard to read way too much because I started reading Goodwin and he's way harder to read. <laughs> so <laughs> I just don't get it. It's it's made some good debates recently on congregationalism. Yeah. <laughs> Jordan and I do some McDonald's runs every once in a while when, when we're doing homework and he, he's been bringing it up recently. Yeah. Um, I've, so at RBC last week was our spring break, but I was taking an intensive course on classical Christian education, uh, with Bob Ingram. He's well known for founding, uh, the Geneva school in Orlando. So he's like a big name in that classical, uh, Christian education world. But we've been, we've been reading the liberal arts tradition, a philosophy of classic Christian education, um, by Ravi Scott Jane and Kevin Clark. And it has been a great introduction into classical education, uh, I did not grow up classically educated at all. Um, I, I, you know, grew up in kind of the Christian school world and homeschool world and then public school. So it's been a really great introduction into classical education and, and what it's about. Uh, the course was awesome last week. It was like eight hours a day, but it was, it was so much fun. Um, and then I've been reading, I just got this a few days ago. And I should have already finished it by now because you can really read this book in one sitting, but it's uh, Elders in Every City by uh, Roger Beckwith. Um, and he's been talking about just uh, the development of polity in the church from beginning with presbyter bishops to then presbyters, the bishops and presbyters and how that development takes place. So that's been a, a good light read. I've been just reading one chapter here and there, and it's, it's been enjoyable so far. So what about you, Josh? So I just began reading um, a book by, let me see his name, Alex J. Novikov. Um, the Medieval Culture of Disputation, Pedagogy, Practice, and Performance. I'm very interested in pedagogy in general and how we can advance and reform pedagogy. And the way that the Reformed Orthodox were taught were in the Medieval Method of Disputation, Compendia, Medulla, etc. So yeah, pick my, I got my hands on this book and I can't wait to go through it. That's awesome. What about you? Okay, so I started, I'm only a chapter in, but I'm already loving it. Anthony Milton, brand new book called England's Second Reformation, The Battle for the Church of England, 1625 to 1662. Um, Milton is a boss. You've got to know Milton. He wrote a, a manuscript on the English uh, British delegation to the Synod of Dort. And it has like translations of those primary sources. So you've got to read that. That's the first way I learned about Davenant, by the way, reading mm -hmm. Milton's work. Um, and he's gone on to write a number of other things about, um, you know, Davenantian brand of Anglicanism. So this book, The Second Reformation, is a, a reappraisal of like what Anglicanism is. Um, and he makes the statement that really there's no, like, you shouldn't even use that word or even try to find an Anglicanism until after the English Civil War. Mm -hmm. Because prior to that, everybody was Anglican. <laughs> like, right. You know, everybody at the Westminster Assembly could be called Anglican. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a really interesting book. Uh, he says, if we're talking about Anglicanism as we think of it today, um, then it, it starts after the Civil War, not before. Um, and that's cool because that excludes Laud. 
Right, right. <laughs> he, he's not uh, he's not around anymore. Um, but Milton is a sharp guy, and he's uh, he's helping with a number of guys. Um, also, Stephen Hampton. He's got a book called Grace and Conformity, who's really helped reframe uh, the view of a more Calvinistic Reformed Anglican. A friend of mine, Jake Greasel. He's got a book coming out on um, a guy named John Edwards. Not not Jonathan, John Edwards, who's a Calvinistic Anglican, who's also in that same kind of milieu. Mm-hmm. And then Richard Snoddy has worked on Usher. So like there's a lot of guys right now kind of putting the picture together. Um, and so uh, Milton's book is the one I'm in and it's, it's super exciting. Um, so if you like what you've heard on this podcast, go get some Milton, uh, Stephen Hampton, Richard Snoddy. And yeah, enjoy. I- yeah, I have Grace and Conformity in my on my Amazon wish list. I'm hoping to get that soon and read through that. But use your libraries, my friends, because okay. these books are expensive. But you're in Orlando, so you know if RBC doesn't have it, get RTS. See if okay. they've got it, and if they don't have it, get interlibrary loan. So they okay. should be able to get it from other libraries. You'll you'll thank me, uh, you know, in a few years. <laughs> They don't teach us these things anymore. This library stuff. I remember having a library card into like third grade and then I forgot about it. Yeah. (laughs) Libraries are a thing, guys. Use your public library. Yeah. Um, Hey, before we end this, I forgot. We didn't bring up John Davenant at all with Ah. the prayer book. Could you give me like a three minute, just for Matthew, give us like a three minute, if you can, um, or it might might be another discussion for another time. Um, Yeah. Sorry, Matthew. Sorry, Matthew. (laughs) Uh, should should have been here. No, just kidding. Um, well, hey, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we really appreciate it. And thank you at home for uh, tuning in. Uh, if you uh, enjoyed this episode, uh, we really appreciate it. If you left us a five-star review on iTunes or Spotify. And if you're on YouTube, of course, hit the like and subscribe button and the bell and all of that. Um, and just help us reach more people with uh, uh, the journey of classical and confessional Protestantism. And we hope to see you next time on the Irenic Protestant podcast. Thanks for tuning in, y'all. Yo, what's up, guys? Uh, 9.30, where, where is everyone? Guys? Guys? Is it 9.30 a.m. or p? It was at 9.30 a.m. It's it's 9.30 p.m.